Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, where we talk with uh, people who are involved in covering, or commenting on, or perhaps even working in politics, but not about politics whatsoever. We talk only about music here and our guests' favorite bands, digging into what makes them their favorites, and perhaps why you should make them your favorites, or at least listen to them a little bit. Learn more. Uh, it's a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Tune in or write at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts at the top. You'll find all of our old episodes. New episodes come out Monday mornings. And if you subscribe, they go right to you. And I would remind you to go ahead and leave a review as well for this fine show, Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And my co-host, as always, standing by, eating a kale chip, Jeff Blair. Jeff! Hey there, Scott. I don't know what about to say. I'm a bit down. I'm just sitting here in the bathtub. I've got a toaster that I plugged in. <laughs> it's uh, perched precariously upon the ledge, and uh, I'm uh, reading Nietzsche and contemplating man's eventual end. How about you? Um, same. Same. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD and, uh, and uh, portending the... Uh, uh, the sort of uh, show we have for us today. Uh, and our guest we bring into the program uh, each and every week, someone new to chat about their favorite band uh, or person, as it may be. Uh, in this case, we'll discuss. Uh, this is uh, uh, Jane Coasted as our guest today. She's formerly of MTV News, now writing for ESPN, The New York Times, and many, many other places as well. And you can find her on Twitter at cjane eighty seven. Jane, welcome in to Political Beats. I don't know what your problem is, Jeff. I'm feeling fun and fancy free. I'm I'm so happy and full of joy and energy and just uh, God's in <laughs> heaven and all is right with the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? We're gonna get into this. I, I uh, but you know what? I don't want to spoil it right now. So so why don't we just keep on going? <laughs> Uh, we, we start each week by asking our, our guest about uh, uh, their political beat, their political job. Uh, Jane, as I mentioned, writing for ESPN, writing for the New York Times, formerly of MTV News. How did you kind of get involved in all this? So I started out actually writing uh, about college football for SB Nation while being snarky and ridiculous on Twitter. And when I went to MTV News, which was a terrific opportunity, I really kind of got into what I like doing, which is writing about conservatism and writing about the GOP. And that was much of my focus at MTV. And that's still a lot of my focus in my writing. I used to joke that I was probably the only person who'd written for both National Review and MTV News, as far as I know. I could be wrong. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think that that's a lot of what I do. But then I also write about sports. You know, my ESPN mag most recent ESPN magazine piece was about USA Gymnastics. And I've also written, of, you know, I'm working on a piece about college basketball. I've written about college football. I've written about the NFL. Um, so I, I like to write about a lot of different things. But I think my political beat would definitely be talking about the GOP and conservatism and, as a whole. And uh, we, of course, bring you here to talk. Uh, we, heck, we could talk a little sports, too. That's fun. But but this show, no, this show is about music. Ask her about her favorite football team, Ohio State. Ohio State? That's yeah. not, not going to play where yeah, I am no. up here in Michigan. No way. That's a joke. No. <laughs> that, that, that's a joke, Jeff. Okay. No. I'm winding her up because I said that to her once, and she was like, I hate them so much. So what is your favorite uh, college football team? That would be the Michigan Wolverines. Okay, good. No, so we're on solid ground. No problem at all. Uh, and now we ask about your favorite 
band. And in this case, um, you know, you hear the name, and at least for me, you think, man, I, I don't know, how long have they been around? Not, not too long. And you look back at their career, yeah, it's uh, it's nearly 30 years at this point for this band, which, I, I don't know, maybe best described as, as industrial or hard rock or... Boy, uh, they go through some genres on on, on different songs and, and, and sometimes in between different songs on the same album. Uh, again, around for nearly 30 years, influential to the extreme, especially to the mid to late 90s. Uh, it is Nine Inch Nails. And Jane, we open the floor to you to talk about how you got into the band, what they mean to you, and, and why should people care? Well, I, I think it's an interesting story because I think that my love for Nine Inch Nails is a case of kind of when you start getting into something when you're like 12, 13, 14, and then you kind of keep going with it and developing kind of the, the, you know, kind of the bracketing and the kind of foundations behind that love. You know, I started listening to nine, the fragile came out in 1999 and I had turned 12 about two weeks beforehand. And already at that point, you know, I had started listening to rage against the machine. And Rage Against Machine was a different band that I also love, but Rage Against Machine was angry about something. Rage Against Machine was like, we want you to be mad about like the Zapatistas and prison <laughs> reform, and we want you to be like really focused on like the case of Mumia Abu Jamal. Like we want you to be focused on something. And I was like 12 and angry, and I'm like, no, I don't, I'm not angry about the Zapatistas. I'm angry about the like being in a very, you know, I know this is a conservative podcast, but at the time, you know, I was like a gay kid going to Catholic school and in a very like isolated political universe. And I wanted, I wasn't angry about anything. I was just angry. And I think that when I started listening to Nine Inch Nails, and especially, you know, the first album I listened to a lot was The Fragile. And The Fragile, a lot of the lyrics were just about when you're, you feel angry and hopeless and there's no particular like reasoning for it. It's not as if like, ah, if this political situation were to change, I would feel much better. Or if I went and if I did this specific thing, things would improve. It was just about the nature of being, feeling something that other people didn't feel. felt like this is you know the late 90s early 2000s and a lot of my peers were listening to like you know this is when Britney Spears comes out like this is when Total Request Live is on MTV and like the top acts on that are boy bands and I'm like I have nothing boy bands have nothing to offer me and yet for some <laughs> the reason hard, the hardest rock something... you could find was Creed or Puddle of Mud I think. <laughs> right exactly and I I distinctly remember there was a moment when like Papa Roach and Corn came out and people were like, yeah, metal's coming back. And I'm already listening to like Skitty Puppy Administrator. I'm like, I don't think you know what metal is. Um, <laughs> and, but I think Nine Inch Nails meant having someone in my life who could vocalize not only just through his voice, but through the music itself, through the music of industrial, what it felt like to be lonely and really angry, but an angry that an anger that wasn't aimed at anything besides 
myself and my situation. And I think that that really, in a weird way, it helped a lot. And it's funny now because, you know, now I've been, I've been a pretty, in, like, hardcore Nine Inch Nails fan for most of my life. Um, you know, I turned 30 a, a couple of weeks ago. And now my enjoyment of Nine Inch Nails, you know, I was just watching the Vietnam War uh, documentary that Ken Burns did. And Trent Reznor did the soundtrack for that. And it's it's been really nice to see Trent Reznor his growth as well because I think you know there there's a lot of interviews he did in the mid 90s in which um, you know there's a People magazine post from 1995 in which uh, Trent Reznor's dog had died and someone told someone at a Nine Inch Nails concert and they responded like well that's good maybe he'll keep coming out with more sad music <laughs> and I was like that's not no that's bad that's no that's not good. So it's been it's been good to see his growth as well, and I think we're going to get to that a little bit later as well. Hi, hey, Scott. How many episodes has it been a political beat? Political beat? So are we at ten at this point? I believe this is uh, this is number ten. Yes, number, number 10. ten. So so we'll have gone through you know two and a half months. Uh, we've done a lot of different bands and a lot of different time periods, and I would say that everything we've done up until this point was a group or an artist that. I was at least passingly familiar with some of them. I was, you know, enormous mega fans of, and then others I'd sort of like. Well, you know, you never mistake me for an Eagles fan, but everybody knows the Eagles, right? Um, when Jane first came to me, and I thank Jane for this. Jane first came to me back when we started the show, so it was like two months ago, you know. And she, you know, she talked to me, and, and she was like, "Anytime, any place, I am there." And I'm like, great. <clears throat> what do you want to do? She's like, Nine Inch Nails. And I'm like, oh, I don't really know much about them. I grew up a, was a bit older than Jane. I'm about five years older than her. Oh, no, actually, that's a lie. I'm seven years older than her. <laughs> <clears throat> Man, that's a depressing realization. I am seven years older than Jane. So I grew up with Nine Inch Nails, but I completely avoided them during my childhood. Uh, the kind of the band that my, my older brother bought a lot of their early albums. Uh, we had uh, the Broken EP. We had uh, you know, the Closer to God single. We had Downward Spiral and those things. Um, but I, I just never, ever touched that stuff when I was in high school for a whole number of reasons. So this is the first band that I had previously you know, just been completely unfamiliar with. And, you know, I told Jane, it's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to put you down on the short list. And I started exploring their music because I figured, you know, we're going to be doing this at some point and I want to know what I'm talking about. And I have to say, they have been the most wonderful discovery musically of the last several years for me. And I thank Jane for that because I, prior to this, completely dismissed them for a whole host of reasons that I think a lot of other people who are going to be listening to this show, you know, you listen to this show, you got a lot of classic rock vibes. Hey, we did our tribute to Tom Petty. Hey, there's the Eagles. Hey, you know, we talked about Van Halen and you see Nine Inch Nails and you're like, oh my God, what am I in for? Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor is not just some sort of guy who pumps out noise that has no, you know, you know, that's just there to like shred your ears off or it's abrasive. The man is a master, a master of melody, of layering, of harmony, a studio genius. The work is so endlessly, endlessly uh, rewarding when you dive down into it. And I have been so impressed listening to everything from the beginnings, you know, the uh, Pretty Hate Machine 
which is you know the first album. We'll get to that in a second. All the way up to his the most recent Nine Inch Nails album. They're, they've they've actually started releasing a couple new EPs. I think it's kind of in anticipation of a new album, maybe going to be coming out at the end of 2017 here. Uh, but their last recent album was uh, Hesitation Marks in 2013. They've had a career that's had ups and downs, but the quality has almost always been there at every single step of the way and if you like anything like so goth or synth pop if you ever liked the cure joy division new order killing joke if you ever liked any band that played the synthesizers if you ever liked anybody who actually paid attention to the formal beauties of melody and you derive meaning out of the lyrics as well which indeed you know if i had found these during my sort of mopey uh high school years i i can't even imagine what kind of person i might have turned into i'm glad i was stuck listening to the beatles uh cuz i would have gone even darker than i already am but i am so grateful that i finally discovered 9 inch nails because trent reznor is uh, it is weird i'm the last guy on the bandwagon here he's a genius there's just no question about it and he was doing things that I realized when I started looking at listening to the music and looking at the times it was released, I was like, wait a second, this was like, you know, half a decade ahead of its time. And everybody who I heard on the radio as an adolescent was really imitating stuff that Trent Reznor had already gotten to, you know, in 1989, in 1992. So it was really amazing for me to just realize how much I had been missing out on with respect to Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm really glad we're doing this show today, because I really want to talk about how this is not a band just for, like, you know, morbid, depressed goths. This is true artistry in in every sense of that term. And before we get to uh, the first album, I'll, I'll chip it and say, uh, I very much was where Jeff is in my relation to the band, where I knew some songs, generally kept, not kept them, but generally had them at arm's length through the course of their career and my uh, my music intake, and of course began to uh, 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 intake a lot of their music here in the past week or so in prepping for the show. And I, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to say, I just, I'm not as effusive as Jeff is in praise, but what I will say is this, I, I had an idea of what Nine Inch Nails music was going to sound like, and uh, it didn't quite match up in a good way, meaning uh, what I found was there was a lot of stuff that I liked, uh, because as, as Jeff mentioned, it's not just uh, this, this, this noise, this wall of noise uh, coming at you for noise sake. There are melodic, uh, you know, traditionally structured songs, um, with with lyrics that uh, that are thought out and that and that mean something, there are some pop instincts to take some of the hard edges off some of the tracks, and and I found myself enjoying uh, quite a bit of it. Uh, on the flip side, there was some stuff that I found difficult to get through, and I would probably say, you know, that's that's just not for me. But um, you know, you, there are going to be people who are are not uh, familiar with the band, and again, might have this idea of what Nine Inch Nails is. 
And I would say at least, you know, when we get to the end, the two albums and the five tracks, try to get through those and give them a listen. Uh, because what I found uh, in many ways surprised me about the band. I think that, of course, the place you start with Nine Inch Nails. And by the way, this is, you know, let's do this. Let's get this out of the way right now. It's called Nine Inch Nails. But really, it's... Um, Trent Reznor and whoever he happens to be playing with at that moment in time. Uh, you know, Trent Reznor, guy is born, I think, in like, you know, you know, born and grow up in uh, rural Pennsylvania. I uh, was working as a janitor in a studio in Cleveland, Ohio, when he first recorded his initial demos. Um, By the way, second, reminds me of, second straight band, saying? second straight band where the lead <clears throat> guy started as a janitor. Paul Westerberg was a janitor at a, uh, a U.S. senator's <laughs> office in Minnesota, and now Trent Reznor, a janitor at the recording studio. So again, lesson to you little leaguers out there, you want to be a big rock and roll star, start as a janitor. That's where all the good yeah, ones come from. That's, you know, that's how you get your in. And by the way, it's <laughs> funny you mentioned the replacements, because I will be making an analogy to them a little bit later on. But uh, what, what's... You know, most important for me when I look at this early stuff, or when I when I look at you know Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, I'm reminded of that old joke about there's this post-punk band that I'm a big fan of that I think probably had some influence on Nine Inch Nails called The Fall. Um, Mark E. Smith. This is a British band that started in the late '70s. They've had like famously like 200 or something members have gone in and out of the group uh, since 1977 to the present day. Mark E. Smith famously said like, "Hey, listen, if it's me and your grandmother on bongos, it's the fall." So if it's Trent Reznor and your grandmother playing distorted and sampled electric <laughs> guitar, it's Nine Inch Nails. So we will be using those names interchangeably throughout the show. You got to understand this is really, you know, this is uh, it's not a one man band, and that there have been a lot of, you know, guitarists and there have been drummers and a lot of interesting creative insights that have been offered by other people around Trent Reznor at the time, but it's really his baby, and and the great way. To segue into that is uh, a man who was nursing a dream <clears throat> of making uh, his own sort of industrially influenced album and working, as Scott just said, as a janitor in a Cleveland recording studio. Uh, he took the job literally because he wanted to be near the music. He wanted to you know, do whatever scut work he had to do in order to have an opportunity to start recording his demos. And he recorded demos and what came out of those demos once he finally sent them around and was able to sort of you know remix them and mess around with them was an album called Pretty Hate Machine and I'm going to toss this over to Jane in a second but I'm going to tell you right now that the thing that stands out the most to me the thing that blows my mind when I listen and I look at Pretty Hate Machine is the date on the back of that cover 1989 Nine Inch Nails was an 80's band <laughs> Nobody thinks of this. We think of them as the quintessential like mid-90s hardcore industrial kind of a group. Nine Inch Nails started in 1989. And if you listen to that album, boy, you know, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails had a huge, you know, an easy to discern artistic evolution through all these early albums particularly. But 1989, that basic concept was there. And this is one of these records that I look at and I think of in the same way that I think of another band that I truly love called Talk Talk. Uh, who recorded some late 80s albums uh, called uh, The Color of Spring in 1986 and uh, Spirit of Eden in 1988. It couldn't be more different sounding uh, you know, than, than uh, the Nine Inch Nails. But they were so futuristic, they were so ahead of their time that even today they still sound like the sound of the future. I was hearing 
100 bands on the radio in 1995 and 1996 that sounded like Trent Reznor sounded in 1989. And that is one of the reasons why I have a lot of love for Pretty Hate Machine as an album that a lot of Nine Inch Nails fans dismiss because they say, well, you know, he grew so much from that point, which is true that he did, but it was still way ahead of its time. So, Jane, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, I have to agree with that. And it's interesting because before Trump started the Nine Inch Nails project, essentially, he was the keyboardist in an electronica band in the mid-80s called Exotic Birds, where basically they were like, we can sound like Depeche Mode. We could do it. And so I think that you really see a lot of that influence on tracks on um, Pretty Hate Machine. You know, if you're going, you know, if you want kind of the more industrial sound, that's where you get Head Like a Hole, Terrible Lie. But then you go to something like Sin, which is kind of dancey. And, or something like Kind I Want To, where you get that same kind of like the dancey, it, it has a snap to it that you don't really get at the time. And, you know, this is the same time where, you know, he's opening for... Jesus and Mary Chain. This is the same time, you know, he's starting, he's listening to Skimmy Puppy and other industrial acts, but it's his industrial is layered, as you said, over this element of kind of pop. And it's very listenable. And it actually, it's interesting because, and we'll get to it when we talk about Broken, but his record label, uh, TBT, whom he hated later, uh, <laughs> Yeah. really just kind of wanted him to keep making Pretty Heat Machine for basically um, from now until eternity. Yeah, it was commercial um, stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, it, cause it does sell. And it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of those tracks, and I've always been fascinated about this, especially with someone like Trent Reznor, who now has this very long career, because, you know, I've, I saw, I've seen him live twice. And he's still doing, you know, people still are like, you're going to do Head Like a Hole. You're going to do you know, something I can never have, which is like, oh my gosh, that is just, it's an amazing, like very, like one piano and him singing and like one drum machine behind him. And I want to make something very clear here that uh, something I can never have is you think of Nine Inch Nails as being like, you know, you know, throbbing guitars and like, you know, wavy synths and these, these robotic beats. Something I can never have is a man in a room playing a piano and singing softly yeah. into a microphone. It's as, as far removed from what you think of either in terms of Nine Inch Nails or in terms of industrial music in general. It just goes to show you how diverse he was, even at the start. Yeah, and I, yeah, think-, and I think that that's, his influences don't, it's not just industrial. I think that that's something that's been challenging for him and for his listeners is that, you know, he's not, he, he refuses to give you exactly what you want, but he's going to give you in a weird way what I think he thinks you need in a sense musically. And that's, I think that that's what you get from Pretty Hate Machine, which is funny because you, you mentioned how you know, a lot of fans kind of dismiss it. And I will say that the, what, the two Nine Chanel songs I do not like are on this album, and that's The Only Time and Ring Finger. Like, those come on, and I'm just like, uh, all right, fine. <laughs> but I, I'm like, well, you were, you know like 24 at the time, so I'll let it go. <laughs> and you know, I think this is, you know, some bands, where do you start if you don't know them very well? You know, their best album or something mid-career. I think this is a perfectly good place to start if you're just beginning uh, a Nine Inch Nails uh, journey or an exploration. Uh, Jeff mentioned there's a lot of kind of the 80s synth in there, uh, Depeche Mode. Um, and then there's very soft, something I can never have. You both mentioned that's an excellent song. 
Uh, I, I like Terrible Lie a lot, which probably leans more toward yep. uh, the industrial side of things than certainly something I can never have. From the start, as Jeff mentioned, you can see that there is more to the band than than just playing loud, right? Than just being uh, this this loud industrial metal type band. There, there there's going to be, and as we'll we'll talk about, there's going to be these uh, very distinct differences between you know loud and soft, between slow and fast, and they're going to be happening all the time. And Pretty Hate Machine, pretty much from 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 day one, from album number one. Uh, puts that on display. I mean, I think another thing that's worth, um, you know, just sort of clarifying here is, is what does industrial really mean? What is industrial music really about? Uh, this is a term that, that gets thrown around and, you know, people sort of have like a half, you know, half-assed understanding of it based on what they've heard on the radio. But, you know, industrial music is actually a fairly old genre. I mean, its origins go back to the mid-70s with a, a band, a British band that well, I'd like, but I, I'm actually going to guess that a lot of people would just passionately hate called Throbbing Gristle, which is, by the way, there's the name, Throbbing Gristle. And it basically tells you everything you need to know about what the music you're going to hear is like. Um, and the original industrial modes, the sounds that they would push forth were emphasized, you know, yes, loud, clanging, machine-like noises. That's why they called it industrial. It sounded like, you know, like a factory just going like, like that kind of a thing and repetition as well which again is very much part of that you know industrial manufacturing aesthetic very british in a way uh the 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 genre moved out you could say that there were bands like killing joke soft cell cabaret voltaire uh, a lot of other groups that sort of picked up on that and ran but the real innovation uh, kind of like you you are amazed that it took this long to happen that nine inch nails brought to this that trent reznor brought to this i think maybe ministry also did too ministry is an underrated band that you, jane you mentioned them earlier uh was bringing melody to this stuff you have that sound that sort of unrelenting sound and, and, and that 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 fascination with you know repetitive sample beats uh, but not repetitive structures in your songs, and also like you know, really kind of like amazingly you know messed up, screwed up guitar sounds and keyboard sounds. But Trent Reznor said, you know what? I'm going to write a damn song as well, and I'm going to actually have a melody. Here's a verse. Here's a chorus. Here's a verse, which is again why some people thought of Pretty Hate Machine as being sort of. I rem I looked back. I did my research. Some people's like, this is sellout industrial. This isn't <laughs> real industrial. So people were actually mocking it within like the genre in the very kind of very small sub world that uh, you know industrial fans had. They didn't like this because of the way it deviated from the accepted norms. But the, of course, the fact of the matter is, as we will see, he was ahead of his time. Uh, he ended up defining what 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 I think sort of quality industrial would end up being and he's the only one to ever really achieve mainstream crossover success now right. what makes this whole story interesting jane i'm sorry what were you going to say no no i i i want to hear what you have to say i'm enjoying this well, 
I, I'm going to say what makes it really interesting is that his next album, and I told you earlier I was going to make a replacements analogy. For, for those of you who yeah. listen to every episode, boy, this is a whiplash, kind of like, whoa, from the replacements to Nine Inch Nails. Well, okay, Nine Inch Nails started off, or rather, the replacements started off doing kind of like a fun, punky, thrashy album called Sorry Ma for, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. But they were sort of part of the hardcore scene in, in 80s Minneapolis. And so their next release, The Replacement Stink EP, was like a straight-up, aggressive, ultra-hardcore record where they tried to be as abrasive, as loud, as nasty, and as, as you know, up your nose as possible. Um, even though, even at the time when they recorded it, they felt it was a bit, uh, a bit phony. They, they, they were kind of putting on a dress that wasn't really who they were. This is what takes us in the Nine Inch Nails analogy to their next release, which I actually happen to love for the same reasons that I love Replacement Stink. Um, <laughs> this is the Broken EP. This is one where he's at war with his record label. He's recording it in secret so TVT doesn't know who's, you know, he, he's going into studios and isn't going to confiscate the masters. This is the nastiest, most unrelentingly aggressive, truly kind of almost, you know, doctrinaire industrial record that he ever did. And I'm not going to lie. It's great. I love this. I love it because it's also because it's blessedly brief. It says what it wants to say and it goes away. And it is just a magnificent little EP that falls between the cracks of his first album and the downward spiral. I can't say enough good things about Broken. This is the first day. You know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but Broken is probably my favorite Nine Inch Nails album for many of those reasons. Like, it starts out with Pinion, which um, for our readers, I would not recommend looking up the video for that. I just, I just would not do it. Um, yeah, I know it's, it's not. It's not a good idea. Um, there was a specific era of Nine Inch Nails in which there was a lot of because uh, actually uh, Peter Christofferson of Coil and Throbbing Gristle did the the performance video for Wish. But then a lot of the other videos have to, well, just don't look it up. Anyway, um, but then it's so interesting also how much you, you start with Pinion and the final song on the album, Suck, ends with, I want to do terrible things to you. And in between, it's just, you know, you've got Wish, you've got Gave Up, which for, I think is still my favorite Night of Jail song. I know, like, I, it's interesting because, you know, I've obviously listened to Night of Jail for such a long time. And yet that's, that's the song when I remember, you know, when I was 13, thinking like, what's going to be like when it, I'm 26 years on my way to hell? And now I'm 30 and I'm like, oh, okay. And it just, it's so, it's so brutal, but beautiful at the same time. Um, it's also funny because there are so many little moments that reference how much he hates 
his music label. Um, there's a fantastic cover <laughs> of uh, You're So Physical by Adam Ant that's like, Amazing, but if you listen closely to the beginning of it, it, he says, eat your heart out, Steve, in reference to Steve Gottlieb of PBT Records. The thing about that EP is, you know, I, I, you know, again, Jane, you know, you talked to me two months ago and, and I sort of, you know, say, ah, oh, I'll do Nine Inch Nails. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I put it in my back pocket and I thought, well, you know what, uh, you know, I'm going to, uh, I got to learn about this group. What do I do? I, I get everything and I sort of organize it chronologically because that's just the way I am. I don't listen to like, what's their best album? I start from the beginning. I go to the end. When I hit Broken, there was one song on Broken, which is the probably the weirdest thing for anyone to single out. It's an instrumental track called Help Me, I'm in Hell. Yep, yep. Yes. Well, you, that it was sounds the, like you could hear shelling in the background. <laughs> right. It was the moment where I realized, okay, these this is this is not your average band. This is such a well calibrated, well organized musical conceit. What I, I I was so appreciative of is that you know you you think that you know Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, they're interested in just cranking out industrial riffs, and then all of a sudden, boom, you get this very soft, gently thrumming, pretty interstitial instrumental. That, that, that draws all of the songs that surround it together. And you realize that every single thing that he was releasing, it wasn't just a haphazard, okay, here's a bunch of songs we, we recorded, we threw them together, here you go, you know, eat the slop, piggies. Uh, no, he actually focused, even on this EP, on putting together a cohesive experience. That one little instrumental, which I think is actually still one of the most beautiful things that Nine Inch Nails has ever done, is... Um, in its own quiet way, the proof of concept that what they were working on, the levels they were working on here were far beyond what any other you know industrial act, including Throbbing Gristle, who, you know, I, I like their work well enough, but I have never really I've never really felt they brought it together on a conceptual level the way Nine Inch Nails did. And on this like one little brief EP, I, I saw it. I suddenly got it. I was like, okay. You know, and I also like the way that everything else escalates. Like all the other actual songs just get louder and nastier and more violent. There's the first major song is is Wish, um, which I know you love. There's a pretty great video for it too. It sounds, it looks like a David Fincher dystopia, which is ironic given that Trent Reznor would end up going on to do David Fincher, you know, out you know, movies to score them. But uh, it is a sort of the classic, again traditionally industrial loud soft loud soft loud 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 kind of a an arrangement but man is it effective and also i one of the things about it is because you talked about how he really took you know he wanted to write a song and wish is a song like with a very you know this is the first day of my last day like it's very like it has a musicality and a fun to it. It's interesting also because uh, he won a Grammy for best amount of performance for that song. And mm -hmm. Reznor joked that um, he hoped his uh, tombstone said Reznor died, said fist F, won a Grammy <laughs> because it, it was just such an interesting like the musicality of that album, which could have you know hypothetically it's interesting because we'll get to the kind of the remix album. And the remix albums that are done actually by you know by kind of industrial pioneers like Coil are way harder than this album. Like 
300% harder than this album from an industrial standpoint. But this album, while being, you know, so hard, while being so loud, is something like, you know, it's beautiful and musical and it really has those elements to it. And it's just, you know, it really, it still, it still gets me every time. You know, this is an album I've been listening to pretty much more than half my life. And I still, you know, I'll probably go listen to it again after this <laughs> recording. Like, I, I love it. It's uh, Political Beats, a uh, presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, our guest today, Jane Coaston, talking about Nine Inch Nails. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com, and the podcast tab. Monday mornings for new episodes. Uh, from Broken, we get to uh, perhaps the best-known album and with perhaps the best-known song and video. This is the downward spiral, uh, and the, and the song, of course, is closer. Which, uh, if people know one Nine Inch Nails song, I'm guessing it's probably that one. Um, this is such an interesting album, and, and you know, Trent Reznor got his got his start, of course, at a studio. You know, janitor being a janitor at a studio, and and boy, oh boy, it kind of it comes through here, right? I mean, the the soundscape that's painted on this album is so impressive, detailed and layered. And again, the, the sonic juxtapositions through the album from, from, from fast to slow, hard uh, to soft, uh, hurt uh, closes things out, which Johnny Cash would, would, uh, would, would cover later. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of great things here. Uh, March of the Pigs, the piano uh, playing through the, through the chorus on there. Uh, the Becoming is a, another uh, song that people might not know that's, that's a good one. Even when I'm right with you, I'm so far away, there's... It's a concept album, too, right? It takes a guy and follows him down. Uh, addiction and madness and eventually suicide. And there are other characters through it, through it too. It's a well-written, uh, finely produced uh, album that uh, I think many would say is, is, is the highlight of Nine Inch Nails' uh, career. I, I would agree. And I, it's interesting because... It is, you know, we, we, I'm sure a lot of people have talked about kind of the, the quote-unquote death of the album, about how people don't generally listen to an album all the way through. And with the downward spiral, you kind of have to, because that's, that's the story. That is the story of, mm-hmm. in a, like, of an entity, of a person, but also of kind of this, each song kind of leads from, you know, from top to bottom, because you've got, at the beginning, you've got you know Mr. Self Destruct. You've got Piggy. With, Piggy was just a, such a strange song, um, where he just keeps saying, you know, nothing can stop me now because I don't care anymore. Dude, Piggy might be the you've best song Harry. on the album, Jen. I'm not even kidding. I, I know, I know. I'm I, I'm aware. Um, <laughs> I love that song so much. It's interesting because you kind of have you know you mentioned how kind of the the, the downward spiral of a person. But at the same time, it's interesting because, you know, the beginning of it is this outward anger a very, like, heresy or something like that. You know, God is dead and no one cares if there is a hell, I'll see you there. Which I remember listening to when I was, like, 13, like, I don't know how I feel about this, but, okay, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, just, it's so funny. It's perfect, like, I'm 13 years old and I have a lot of feelings. And now listening to it, I'm like, I don't know if I quite had those feelings. But then it, you know, the back half of the album is this internalization of that, that same sentiment where it's not, you know, it can't be fixed with sex. It can't be fixed with violence. You know, he's saying, like, I do not want this. You know, you get like, 
eraser or something like that, which is just like, I don't know what to do with all of this. I don't know where to put it. And that's where, you know, it kind of culminates in Hurt, which, you know, is a, a gorgeous song. And it just, it goes in so many different directions, but it's, it's such a fascinating album still. What I love the most about this album, and, and, and Jane is, has actually done a pretty decent job of summarizing it, is how it truly demands to be listened to as a record. Of course, the song that everyone knows, well, there's two songs, actually, you know, uh, Scott mentioned one, which is Closer, which is actually the source of one of my most embarrassing high school anecdotes, uh, which is that in my senior year of English class, uh, alas, this is this is really bad. Uh, <laughs> somebody uh, did a presentation. I think it was on uh, Sylvia Plath poems. Uh, we were doing Sylvia Plath's Ariel, her collected poems, and they brought in the song to like you know it was like an audio video visual presentation, and they they played closer to like oh no. This. And like, oh, no. oh, look at me, look at me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a laid back guy these days, you know, but man, for some reason, I was the biggest blue nose in the world. And when I heard <laughs> Trent Reznor sing, I want to F you like an animal in the middle of high school English class, I was like, this shall not stand. I was offended. I was like, what is going on here? There must be rules. How can we allow this? It was kind of the thing that makes me feel stupid. I've done a, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life, but it's amazing the things you flash back on to your high school life. And mine actually involves Nine Inch Nails. I uh, obviously am now a, a married adult, so I don't have a problem with that song. And I actually really actually appreciate the way he meant it, which I think was misinterpreted by a lot of people. It gets kind of listed is like well, one of the sexiest songs ever, I think. It was... No, no, it's, it's funny. He, he actually I talked would... about how, um, yeah. you know, walk, walking into like, he, someone took him to a strip club in like 1995 and people are playing that. And he's like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> not... that, is, that is not a sexy song. That is a self-loathing song. That is like, I right. feel like a monster. I don't know how to relate to people except through these, you know, purely animalistic yeah. urges. And, but, the, but the thing is, is that Boy, you know his music almost gives a, his music almost betrays those lyrics because oh, yeah. the music really, it's you know, like it goes, it like grooves, it really does, and especially you know the last. It's interesting because a lot of times people, you know, you get so focused on kind of the beginning of it, but I would say you know there's this spoken part at the end. Um, you know, you are the where he's like talking about like essentially talking to a woman like you are the reason I stay alive, and then after that it goes into this like. You know, at the 445 mark, it just starts getting into this groove, like, like, and it just goes there for a long time. And it's interesting, if you watch his performance at Woodstock 94, he's literally playing this on the keyboard and just, like, rocking with it. And it just, it's so good. It's just so good. that like It's one of those moments, I think, Jeff, you asked me yesterday, like, you know, is it, is it okay if I'm not really listening to the lyrics and a lot of these things? And I'm like, I think it, it, I think it is, but... I'm closer, it actually will kind of get you into trouble because you will think like this is a very seductive song. Then you listen to it and you're like, oh, this is not a seductive song at all.
I mean, it, it's a song that, that, that perfectly illustrates dramatic iron. Is that you, 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 the right. music tells you? I mean, I think of the other one that I would think of completely random band is Radiohead has a song called House of Cards off of In Rainbows, which sounds like a sexy song. And a lot of these girls I know think, oh, that's really sexual. That song is not about feeling sexy. That song is about horrible, destructive guilt and about you know how your ears should be burning, how everything that we're doing here is horribly wrong and we're pretending that it's okay. Um, and people don't get it because the music just carries you along in this sort of oceanic groove like a Fleetwood Mac's Albatross. When, getting back to the downward spiral, it, it's funny. There, there are two songs on this that immediately leap out to me. The first is Piggy, which is funny because I don't think a lot of people would ever mention that song. I love that song, and I love the insane drum track at the end of that song. At the end, it's the only live drums on the album, apparently. I, I looked this up because I was so taken with it. Um, it, it it's a guy – just drumming out of control, overlaying you know, five different drum tracks. And it, you, every time you expect it to lose the beat, it still stays in line. It still stays in line. But the melody, again, this is a song. This, these are really well-written songs. Hurt is the last one. I'll address that at the end. But what I really love the most about the Downward Spile is that strange middle section of it. This isn't a record really that's divided into like a side A and a side B, the way old vinyl LPs were. This isn't a CD album. So you have this very middle period of the record from, I'd say, Ruiner, The Becoming, I Don't Want This, Big Man with a Warm Gun, a Warm Place, Eraser. So I from like about 6 to 11 on that album where everything just becomes incredibly hypnotic. You have these beats, these repetitive beats. The way he phase, plays with phases, sound phasing, uh, not going to get technical with you, but he is such a master of dynamics. He's not just uh, a guy, again, who cranks out noise. He is absolutely painstaking in the sounds, the dynamics that he uses. He will be very quiet. He will gate. He will muffle. He will exclude reverb. He will add reverb. He will mess with the sounds, that the natural sounds of instruments, guitars, synthesizers, drums. They get these very unnatural sounds that make it feel like you're truly walking through uh, some sort of nightmarish fantasy world that – I said nightmarish, but it's not really a nightmare because it's deeply appealing to me. It's the middle section of the downward spiral that I am absolutely convinced evinces what his genius is. And that's the part that nobody really talks about. Yeah, and I think that that's something Ruiner really, like, the, the Ruiner goes to this point of this really, you know, you've got kind of the beginning, like, of this very industrial section of the song. And then it just randomly was like, oh, we're going to kind of do some bluesy stuff for a little while. And then they're like, nope, <laughs> never mind. No more blues. We're right. done now. And it never it, bores you. So no, it never does. And you know, you see so many. One thing that I've always thought is that Trent Reznor has listened to so many different kinds of music and taken so much inspiration. And, you know, the example I like to use is the end of Reptile where he just starts crooning towards the end, mm. like singing this, like, Oh, my beautiful liar. Oh, my precious. But like in this like crooning voice at the end where it sounds like he's just lying on the floor. <laughs> and it's, it's so interesting, this story and these, this, the way he puts music together where, you know, and again, to think that this is something that's, you know, he's working on this in 1993, 1994. Um, unintentionally in the house where the Manson killings happened. Um, 
because that was where he could afford to do it. And apparently no one told him that's why he could get it so cheaply. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, actually Sharon Tate, it's a funny story. Sharon Tate's sister came by and was like, you know, are you exploiting my sister Jeff by living in her house? And he was like, I, I have to go. I have to leave. And, you know, he starts thinking about like, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with a, with what he calls serial killer and leaves. But that's where, you know, if you watch the video for Gave Up, it's recorded in that house with Marilyn Manson doing backing vocals. But then he recorded a bunch of downward spiral in that house. And it's so interesting to think like, this is like 1993, like 1994. And he's doing things musically and sonically that I think that we're, you know, we're still trying to figure out in a way. Political Beats uh, podcast here. It's Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Jane Coaston today talking Nine Inch Nails. And we can kind of go forward a bit to the... Well, no, no, actually, Scott, I hate to cut you off. That's okay. The one thing, we cannot leave the downward spiral without discussing its most famous song, the one that probably for most people who only casually know Nine Inch Nails uh, has the most resonance. And I think that's actually a fair thing. It's Hurt. Hurt is the last song on the downward spiral. And, of course, if you know this song, many of you probably know this song, actually, not through Nine Inch Nails' original version, which is great. Uh, very, very excellent. But you know it through Johnny Cash's version, which is uh, kind of become, I think, I think Reznor himself says, like, I feel like that's not my song anymore. <laughs> I think, like, you know, it's like, you know, you know, watching your girlfriend go hook up with another guy, you know, like he, he stole it from him, but he didn't mean to. Um this is, you know, I hurt myself today to see if I feel, still feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. And, and this is not only a beautiful melody, it's a absolutely devastatingly powerful lyric. Um, I, I wear this crown of, well, Johnny Cash said crown of thorns upon my liar's chair. I'm full of broken thoughts that I can't repair. And then the chorus is, you know, what have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And it's so amazing to me how this song is, you know, on the downward spiral as the conclusion to this sort of long journey. It, it's devastating and it's beautiful. And then yet you could have Johnny Cash a decade later repurpose it and turn it into something completely different. I was talking with Jane about this the other day and she said like, yeah, you know, even she agrees that, you know, Johnny Cash did the definitive version of that song because – you know, Trent Reznor is writing about like a 28-year-old guy sitting at home alone and feeling really depressed about life. But Johnny Cash was you know, a man who'd gone through all of these incredible things in his life, tragedies and triumphs, and you know, looking at his mortality and, of course, watching the people he loves die and watching his own life slip away. And he actually passed away like I think a month after his version of that song came out. Um, Everyone knows hurt. Again, this is one of those things that I don't begrudge. Like if if your if your intro to Nine Inch Nails is hurt, their version of hurt, that's a good thing. What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away.
And I think that it's, it's, you know, as I talked about that, I think that that's one of the things that I really enjoy so much, not just about Hurt, but about the album overall, is that it can mean, yo, know, Johnny Cash listening to that is, is listening to that album is a different experience than me listening to it when I was 13, 14, 15, different than I'm sure it is for Trent listening to it now. And it's interesting because um, Trent Reznor, he did an interview, because he's not gotten some new music coming out, and he did an interview, I think, earlier this year or late last year, talking about how there are certain songs in the album he does not perform because he thinks at a certain point, like, they were almost too performative for him to do now. You know, this is someone who now is, like, married and has children, and it's, like, a very different experience of playing these songs, even though he knows that the audience is, like, you know, we definitely want to hear this, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure it's a different experience. It, it's, it must be fascinating to kind of try and think about that headspace that he was in when he was able to write songs like Eraser or something like that, where, you know, the ending is just him screaming, kill me. Like, it's just not, <laughs> like, it's just a different experience when, you know, you've got little kids and you're like, no, actually, I'm, I'm okay. Like, this is a different experience for me now. Okay, very briefly, I want to talk about, uh, after the Downward Spiral, there was a remix album released called Further Down the Spiral. And uh, this isn't the first remix album that was released. Uh, Broken had a uh, remix album, companion album released with it called, uh, an EP called Fixed. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, 99 times out of 100, you see, quote, remixes, and you roll your eyes. You're like, this is going to be some boring 12-inch club dance mix that has, like, <laughs> bumba chicka, bumba chicka, bumba chicka, added on to the backtrack, and it's pointless. Nine Inch Nails are different. And I actually just want to just hand this over to Jane to, to give us a brief summary of why... Nine Inch Nails actually make the whole concept of, quote, song remixes into its own valid separate genre. It's like a second second career. Uh, it's like a second story of their entire career. And I'm actually been hugely impressed by this stuff. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a lot of the story of Nine Inch Nails, because I think that for a lot of people, that you know, you think about the main albums, but the, the remixes that go with it, for instance... Um, there's the Sin album, which features the uh, Trump's cover of Queen's Get Down, Make Love. and But then you get something like Fixed or Closer to God, which are very much, it's not like a remix. It's not like we're going to take this remix and get it on the dance floor or club somewhere. It's very much like a reinterpretation or reimagining of, you know, what would it look like if I had done this song like this? What would it meant have I done the song in this other manner? And so I think that that's something that's really special about Transfer, especially because he's doing a lot of this, you know, closer to God is something he's working on in, you know, like it's very early work in terms of remixing. And then yet he's able one to create new tracks like memorabilia and two really able to kind of look at his own work through these fresh eyes. It's, it's something I've never really seen before because I think that, you know, a lot of times, and I, I speak of someone who does enjoy electronic music, but it's a lot of times yeah, if you're listening to somebody like Dead Mouse or something like that, the reinterpretation of their music through their own eyes just sort of sounds like themselves. Like It's like an echo of the same song. Right. And with Nine Inch Nails, it's just not. It's a very different feel to it. Fixed is 
different from you know what you're going to hear on Broken. I think part of that is because he did bring in, as I mentioned, um, producers from Coil, producers from Throbbing Gristle to work on it, um, and it's going to be something. You know, I my my favorite Nine Inch Nails story uh, was when you know I was when I was in high school and I, was, I believe I was listening to this album and my mom comes running in from outside where she's in the garden because she thought our stereo had something wrong with it and I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm literally listening to the happiness and slavery remix at a level that is concerning <laughs> everyone. Level, yeah, well, that was what was wrong with the stereo. But this, of course, yeah. <laughs> inevitably brings us to okay, the downward spiral. This is the first industrial album that ever makes it big. I think it goes to number one. Boy, maybe one of you two can correct me I on that. I think number two. I think it stalled at number two. <laughs> At number two, but nothing like this had ever become this commercially enormous. And of course, number two or number one, it didn't matter. Nine Inch Nails became big again. How do I know? Because you know, my brother was buying these albums. I wasn't. I stayed away from them. But you saw them. You knew them. You knew Hurt. You knew Closer. This band broke through big. This was their moment to strike while the iron was hot. This is their moment to go out there and really kill it. And then what happens? Trent Reznor. At this point, we find out later, pretty pathetically addicted to drugs, um, takes five years to release the follow-up to the downward spiral, to the point where I actually do remember in 1998, people idly chatting about, like, well, is Nine Inch Nails done? Did Trent Reznor die and nobody <laughs> told us? Like, you know, are they done? And then finally, in 1999, they come out with The Fragile. The Fragile goes to number one for, I think, one week, and then it has the, the steepest drop of any album in the history of the modern rock charts. It goes from number one down to, like, number 16 or number 20 or something like that. Basically driven to the top because people were curious, and then people were turned off. Because this is a double album. It's 105 minutes, something it's, it's incredibly long. And there is almost nothing here that is immediately accessible. There are no pop hits. It's just long textures, sonic canvases. There's one exception, which is uh, the song that I think is probably my least favorite song on the record for that matter. But the the eternal debate about the fragile is, is this Nine Inch Nails' greatest achievement, their true masterpiece, or is just a, an overlong muck through the marsh that should have been edited down to half its length? Uh, I think it's genius. I, this is the first album that I listened to close to when it came out. Um, I do agree. It's not accessible, but I have, I've told, um, there's a guy, he, um, he's on ESPN. His name is Bomani Jones. And we've talked about, you know, how is he going to start getting into Nine Inch Nails? And I'm like, okay, I know a lot of people are going to be like, start with Downward Spiral. And I'm like, okay, you need to sit down. You need to listen to all of the fragile. You just have to, you've got to do it. Like, Something and it's it's interesting because I think that this is the moment. Um, you know, Trent at the time was really struggling with the idea of what people. You know, people wanted him to basically just make closer and wish again, and that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to experiment, and that's what you get with something like the way out is through, which is like it goes like it leaps off a cliff into the stratosphere, and it goes so many different places. And, you know, you said something like La Mer, like it's gorgeous work. And at the time, he's, you know, there are so many expectations for what's supposed to follow up this album that some people, you know, I think from an industrial standpoint, people just thought at a certain point that you could go from broken to downward spiral. You're basically just going to wind up essentially at a coil album, which isn't what Trent wants to do. 
you know, you get something that's very different. You get something that is, you know, one of my favorite songs on the album, The Wretched, which has a, a lead in, which is called The Frail, which is just a lone piano with like a synthesizer behind it, just playing like, like one note per like 30 seconds. And it's, it's such an interesting album that I feel like, you know, we could do an entire podcast just talking about The Fragile because it's just, I can understand why if you came into this thinking that you were going to get either of his prior two albums, you were going to be disappointed. But if you came into it thinking like, I'm about to go on an adventure on, like, on this journey, like, you, it, it's fantastic. That song is, again, it's actually pretty energetic, but what I love about it is that the vocal lines are genuinely creative on that song. They intersect with one another. They're, you know, they're, they're really kind of howling. They go up and they go down. And uh, that, to me, is one of the very few kind of Nine Inch Nail songs where I actually would single out the singing. The vocal parts are just as important as anything that's being done instrumentally. And I also, Adrian Ballou. Uh, Adrian Ballou, uh, a guitarist who first started with Frank Zappa, went on to work with the Talking Heads, then joined King Crimson, and that's where he became really famous. I love him as a guitarist. He played with David Bowie as well. There's obviously a reason that these people all intersect with one another in terms of their influences. He plays on Where Is Everybody? He plays on a lot of the material on The Fragile. I love his work on that song. Um, this is an album that is... Yeah, it's not an album. It's uh, it's Don Quixote. You know, you <laughs> sit down and you're in it for like you know two hours, and you're gonna go on a bunch of places. Some of the songs go on too long. I think this is the problem of spending five years to put together a record. But I still, there's only one song that I would remove, and that is okay. Get the bleep button ready, Scott. It's Star <laughs> Incorporated. All right, I hate that song. It is. Oh yeah. It is embarrassingly unsubtle, and it stands out on the album for its clumsiness. It is, you know, uh, transparently song, a Marilyn yeah. Manson attack. What were you going to yeah. say, Jane? That is specifically – it's interesting because I think that that's one of the tiny moments. Like, keep in mind, you know, you mentioned that the industri- – very early when we were talking about Pretty Hate Machine, that the industrial community is very small. And so for a lot of people, obviously, Marilyn Manson is not industrial in a sense. It's kind of edged into more goth metal. But – they used to, you know, they worked together, they were sort of friends, and then something happened where they hate each other. And Trent Reznor still talks about Marilyn Manson in the way that you'd talk about your ex-wife. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty funny. But, like, yeah, no, when you're talking, like, it's Star Incorporated, where it, it's not, it's not very good, but it had this, it's interesting, because I think that when you look at it within the, the realm of that, the time and that particular album, it's, you can see that that's where Trent Reznor's own his own addictions and his own issues, especially with relation to kind of how he was perceiving this album, the fact that he was existing in a world in which very few he trusted very few people, 
and Marilyn Manson had been kind of one of those people and then no longer was kind of a jerk. Yeah. And so I think it's, yeah, I would definitely take that off the album. And that's actually something, um, you know, he does not, he used to do that live. If you listen to the, uh, live album, there needs to be another live album. Absolutely. Like, but if you listen to and all that could have been, that is, you know, that's on there, but he, you know, I don't think I've ever actually seen it live. I don't think he's done it in the last, I'd say like 12, 13 years. It's one of the very few things I can actually think of in the in the Nine Inch Nails discography that I think is embarrassing. Just like you know, like okay, you know, you're hacking yourself. You 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 you're repeating yourself, and it's hack work. But you mentioned addiction, and that's important because, of course, that's the untold story. Ever since Downward Spiral era onwards, Reznor had been sliding into increasing addiction to you know, you know, uh, you know not only alcohol but cocaine and I think heroin. Um, but most importantly, I think during the tour for the Fragile, he uh, got what he thought was cocaine. It turned out to be heroin. It was literally like the Pulp Fiction hmm. scenario, you know, where like you know Uma Thurman, you know, snorts what she thinks is cocaine. It's heroin. She has a heart attack. In fact, I almost like it's amazing that 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 movie came out six years before this happened. But it was the same scenario. Uh, he finally got clean. And he got clean, and God, God help, God thank it for that, because you know, nobody wants to see a, a great musician die. I don't, I don't like rock and roll casualties. I think that that glamorizing that stuff is a bunch of crap. But uh, his next couple of albums, um, with one exception, seem to be kind of that part of that post cleanup um, come down that do not appeal to me as much with teeth is the uh, Nine Inch Nails 2003 album. He's cranking them out a little bit faster now than he had been before. But With Teeth is the first album that I think is a backslide. It feels like it should have come out after the downward spiral, maybe even after Broken. Uh, it right. does not feel like a sequel to The Fragile. It feels no, it, it's very appallingly different. generic at times. I think me. that um, I, I, I am more defensive of With Teeth. I think that it's, it's interesting also because keep in mind that, you know, Trent Reznor has been kind of living with addiction and alcoholism and the alcoholism that was as a result of everything that had happened, you know, basically for 10 years, essentially from closer or, or not, um, from like the broken tour, which is like 1992. And if you ever, you know, there's a constant movie called Closure that's very difficult to find. But basically, if you watch that, you're like, oh, it's kind of amazing that Trent Reznor is still alive. So that's, you know, 1992, and then you've got the Fragile Era Tour, which is where some terrible things happen. And then, you know, a friend of his, he has a studio in New Orleans where he's doing, he does a couple of um, movie singles, and he's done some work. He actually was, he has a song on the album for The Crow, which is uh, his cover of um, uh, Joy Division song. Um, and he's got some other, like, kind of movie work and kind of singles that he's got. And if you watch, you know, I, I had Jeff watch the video for Deep. It is not good. Oh my um, God! Not, Listen, the less said about it, the better. It's the most okay. That's the second most embarrassing thing that he's ever. <laughs> yeah, and so but you know he covers Dead Souls by Joy Division for the Crow. He does uh, Burn for Natural Born Killers, and he does um, Perfect Drug for the Lost Hi for the Lost Highway soundtrack, which is a David Fincher movie. Um, and that's very much you know if you watch Perfect, it's a very he it was living in New Orleans, not really talking to people, not doing anything except drinking and using drugs and trying to figure out how to make music because everything just seemed too hard and difficult. And then a friend of his was killed. 
And that was the moment in which, um, you know, in like, I think like a random street burglary in New Orleans. And that was the moment he was like, I absolutely have to get clean. That's when we get sober. And it's so funny because he basically, you know, if you see Trent Reznor perform now, he's like ripped. He is very, <laughs> he works out all the time. He's very like, I'm, you know, wants to go talk to people and is interested in things. And all of this happens after he gets sober. And so I think that there are some pieces, you know, I think with teeth has, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's not obviously a perfect album, but it has moments that I think are really intriguing. Um, I'd point out the song Only, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a really good reflection on him taking on his own personality. Um, you know, he talks about, it's basically kind of him talking to his own neuroses. Um, he talked, you know, yes, I am alone, but then again, I always was. As far back as I can tell, I think maybe it's because you were never really real to begin with. I just made you up to hurt myself. And I remember listening to, you know, listening to this album, it would have been my, I would have just been starting college or like end of high school. And I think that that was something I really, really reflected on because my own issue, you know, struggles and my own thoughts about dealing with depression and anxiety, a lot of that is something that you kind of create and then hit yourself over the head with. You know, you have these anxieties and then you kind of take those anxieties and use them as reasons to have more anxieties. And so I found that song in particular just very, like, I was like, oh, like once again, Trent Reznor feels something that is similar to what I'm thinking, but in a way that he can only describe it. And then I'd also say, um, there's a first song in the album, All the Love in the World, which ends in like this crazy like gospel choir. I I love that. I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> I actually um uh, I like with teeth, and I'm I'm not telling you it's the perfect album or even the best one in the in the catalog, but uh I I think it's pretty consistent from start to finish. I don't know if there's a truly terrible song on there. Um, which is not damning with faint praise. Um, the Hand That Feeds, the, the single from it, I think might be, um, uh, I don't know, it might be my favorite song. They do. I really yeah, like The Hand That Feeds. That's sure for me, too. Um, you know, it's a rock-centric uh, album. I think you know more guitars and, and, and the drums. Dave Grohl plays a bit on it as well. Uh, right where it belongs is is a good song. And Jane mentioned only, which I like a lot. Um, I, I I think with teeth is is kind of a slow burner. It's not going to reach out and and and, and grab you. Uh, but some time given to it will 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 show some highlights sh- shining through. So, I, you know, I, I, it's not it, it's not a, a proper follow up to the fragile, as Jeff mentioned. It's six years later, um, so, so things have changed. But I think I think it's a pretty, uh, as I said, pretty consistently good album. The funny thing is, okay, so you have six years. First of all, you know, downward spiral, then the fragile, five years, and then before that, there would have been like what four years between, you know pretty hate machine and the downward spiral you have six years between the fragile and uh with teeth and then all of a sudden 
Trent Reznor just starts farting out music like it's nobody's business. <laughs> the later career of Nine Inch Nails is like ridiculously prolific. For, I guess it's gotta be newfound sobriety. So after 2005, you know, year zero, it's 2007. Then Ghosts in 2008, and then a full-scale album, The Slip, also in 2008. And uh, I'm going to leave off the last one before that. But you have that bracket, and I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> Year Zero is just a little bit too... You know, there are concept albums, and then there are concept albums that just sort of invert their craniums up the rectums, and that one's a little bit too much for me. I've never been able to get into it. I keep wondering if I come back to it. I've listened to it like six times since I started, you know, since I bought it, you know, a month ago. And a lot of people tell me it's great, and I don't like it. The same thing with the slip. The slip is the opposite. It feels far too casual. It's like, well, you know, the, the attention to detail that you, you come to expect from Nine Inch Nails is is not there. It's good. I don't think they've ever put out a bad album, like an authentically bad album, but it's not there. But the one that I love, that I will find the least ability to explain to other human beings in a reasonable fashion, is Ghosts. What this is, it's Ghosts 1 to 4 is what it technically is. It is an almost entirely instrumental album. The songs have no titles. It's just numbers 1 through 9, Ghosts 1, numbers you know, one through, uh, you know, nine ghosts, two, on and on and on. It's a bunch of instrumental fragments. What it reminds me the most of is David Bowie's instrumental work. And even more than that, it reminds me of Brian Eno uh, doing stuff like music for airports, music for films, um, uh, uh, discrete music, uh, the ambient instrumental stuff. And I have to say, as this is, this is what I kind of almost what I was thinking of when I told Jane here at the beginning of the show how grateful I was. Uh, I love this sort of stuff. I love to work to this sort of stuff. I love ambient instrumental background music. I had no idea that Reznor was actually working in this form. I'm going to say if you like interesting instrumental music, if you want something to put on while you're doing something else that will still kind of keep engaging your head and drawing you back to it and yet roll on and keep you in a groove and in a zone ghosts one through four by that's the last thing that most people would recommend as your must hear nine inch nails album but i love it to death it's it's beautiful and uh, as i mentioned he did uh the soundtrack um him and his uh, uh partner atticus ross did the soundtrack for the ken burns vietnam war documentary and a lot of that is featured a lot of that is from the and a lot of that is kind of reworkings of tracks from Ghosts. And, um, you know, I, I hope it's okay, but I think that one of the other things, Trent Reznor, you know, he did the soundtrack to The Social Network. He did the soundtrack, I believe, to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm -hmm. um, I need to double check that. But I think that it's interesting because you talk about how prolific he's become because I think that a lot of times, you know, and we've seen this before, and it's such a challenge for a lot of musicians to kind of get out of their own way. And it's, I mean, it must be terrifying. It must have been absolutely terrifying to realize, you know, you've made Closer. This is the most successful thing you've ever done in your entire life. And now, or you've made the downward spiral. And now you have to try and follow it up with something and how much pressure that would be. And now you can tell that he does not, Trent Reznor does not feel any pressure at all. You know, if you don't like it, it's okay. If you do like it, that's great. And, you know, he's much more, 
you know, even in interviews, he's much more easygoing and much more introspective. Um, he's willing to kind of give new things a shot. Like he's willing to, you know, work on a cover of Immigrant Song for a movie. He's willing to do all this other work um, that's really unexpected. You know, I, 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 someone tweeted something when the Vietnam War documentary came out that like, can you imagine telling yourself in 1994 that Trent Reznor and Ken Burns would be working together? <laughs> like, it's kind of a wild concept. It is. But, um, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. So, but what do you think about the uh, the actual albums? What do you? I mean, Year Zero, uh, the Slip. I don't know. I I I feel guilty for not liking these as I, much I, as I, I feel like I should. But what do you think? I think I think part of that for me is that you know, it's kind of like you know, you saw a movie when you were ten. You know, it's the greatest movie of all time. And then they make a sequel to that movie when you're like twenty, and you're like. Oh, well, and then you rewatch the movie that you liked originally, and you're like, oh, this was actually okay. I think that, you know, I'll never quite have the same emotional response to the later work as I will to the earlier work. But I do quite like some pieces from uh, The Slip. Um, I like some pieces from Year Zero. I think the concept of Year Zero was extremely, like, that got really involved. Like, there was this whole thing about, like, the, you know, Trent Reznor's the record company leaving, like, MP3s in bathrooms for people to find. It was this whole thing. It was very much made for, like, if you are someone who has been a Nine Snails fan for a really long time and are willing to, like, go to the ends of the earth to find all the stuff and to look, and, you know, do all these certain things, like, I think that that was, that was very much made for people who were, like, obsessive, even more so than I am. Hmm. And so, but at the same time, you know, something like The Slip, I really like Letting You. I think that a lot of the songs on kind of the back half of the album, Lights in the Sky, are just really melodic. And it's, you know, again, I'm not going to get as passionate about it as I can be about Broken, but, you know, I've been listening to Broken since, you know, for 18 years. Like, I can't possibly get that emotional about anything that I have, you know, that came out more recently. And so... Yeah, I, I appreciate the work, especially because um, I don't, you know, I would strongly recommend that anyone is interested, and if you can, I would strongly recommend seeing Nine Inch Nails live, because a lot of these tracks that don't cut, quite come across on the album live, it's just like, he has thought about this, this is, you know, there's a presentation to these tracks that is just really amazing. Scott, any thoughts about these before we move on to hesitation marks? To be quite honest, I, uh, I scanned these and did not give a thorough listening to. So I, I, I cede uh, opinions to you two on the, on the back half of the Nine Inch Nails catalog. Well, what I will say about this is this. Um, I had considered, you know, going through these things, not living them in real time the way Jane has. I thought, okay, the inevitable artistic trajectory of a career. You have your peak. You have your dip, your long, slow decline, um, and those things happen. Then you had ghosts, and I was like, okay, that's an intriguing little sort of side street, but it's not the main Nine Inch Nails career. Hesitation Marks, the last album that has come out up until this point, this is 2013, I was hugely impressed by, and I think is uh, a major reversal of form. Um, it's dreamy, thoughtful soundscapes. Again, like almost all of these albums, CD era, it's overlong, but it's never generic, like with Teeth or, or The Slip. Uh, Find My Way 
is is a huge favorite of mine. Everything is, I think Reznor himself almost feels like, yeah, everybody keeps talking to me about everything. It's so poppy. It's it's so friendly and artistic, you know, musically friendly and uh, that I don't want to play it live. But the one that I love the most is All Time Low. It's the song that comes after Find My Way. It has these wonderful keyboards at the end. This is Adrian Blue guitar. Hesitation marks, despite the name, which of course people unaware, hesitation marks is like the person who's trying to slit their wrists, but they're reluctant to do it. Yes, that to me is the alone concession to sort of, you know, cliche grimness, and I don't like that. But the rest of that album is actually surprisingly upbeat for Nine Inch Nails, and I was incredibly impressed to find that they that he or they were capable of sort of making a comeback and putting out music that had some, a lot of the same sonic subtleties and textures that uh, a lot of the best work on the Downward Spiral and the Fragile had. Right. And I think I would say that, you know, my favorite track on Hesitation Rocks is probably a copy of us. Um, and I love All Time Love. And again, my favorite track that it's, it's, just the reinterpretation and the way, especially um, you're talking about Unashnown Live again, the way that he's able to take something like All Time Low and then somehow blend that into be able to go from that to playing something from Pretty Hate Machine. And like the fact that this is, this is a career. This is not just, you know, these are not just individual songs. This is kind of the story of an overall career. I am just a shadow of a shadow of a shadow. Well, I think it's around that time of the show, unless we have any final thoughts lingering out there, where we uh, try to uh, advise our listeners two key albums that perhaps everyone should own and five key tracks that you need to hear from our band today, Nine Inch Nails. And we always turn this over to our guest first, Jane Coaston. Follow her on Twitter at CJane87. Jane, your lists, please. So my two essential albums would have to be, you know, my two of my favorite albums and the history of time, uh, Broken and The Downward Spiral. I think that Broken is something, it's, it's, you know, if you've got like an hour, you can listen to the whole thing and then start it again. Uh, the Downward Spiral is something that is just, it's, it's a masterwork. And I really think that that's something that is, is worthy of kind of reconsideration. You know, I think a lot of people who might be listening was like last heard a song from the Downward Spiral in like 1995. It's time to come back. It's time to do it again because I think that it's really worthwhile. Um, my five essential songs, uh, Terrible Lie, which is off Pretty Hate Machine. Um, Reptile, which is off The Downward Spiral. Closer, off The Downward Spiral. 
Gave Up, which is my favorite Nine Inch Nails song, probably, uh, Off Broken, and then Copy of a, which is on uh, Hesitation Marks. Uh, so I think the two that I would recommend people uh, grab, Downward Spiral, and I, I, I actually going to say With Teeth, because again, I, I think it's pretty consistent from start to finish. And is a little more accessible for someone just entering the band than than perhaps uh, the Fragile and, and maybe a few others. So, Downward Spiral and, and with Teeth, the uh, the albums, uh, the songs. I'm with Jane. I, I really like Terrible Live from Pretty Hate Machine. Um, the Becoming from uh, Downward Spiral, uh, with Teeth and the, the Hand That Feeds, the best song on that album. Um, I think right where it belongs, and we're in this together. Jeff? All right. Okay, so I'm going to be the almost trad guy and say that the ones you need to get are the Downward Spiral, we've all agreed on that, and the Fragile, which, yes, it's difficult, it's long, it's overlong, but bite me, you got to just throw yourself into the deep end sometimes and immerse yourself in a true sonic wonderland, and the Fragile is that. Whatever its indulgence is, it justifies them with the absolute... Um, journey through a completely unexpected and unanticipated sonic world uh, that it gives you. Um, my five songs. Uh, okay, you know what? You know what? I'm going to give you six songs. You know why? I'm the host of this show. I can do what I want. I love it. The first one will be Head Like a Hole. Again, kind of a hit single, but it shows you where Nine Inch Nails came from. And it also shows you Trent Reznor at his most unapologetically pop best. Verse, chorus, hook, pre-chorus, it's got it all. It's a great song. Wish, off of Broken, their purest hardcore statement ever, um, not just in the structure of the song, but in the way those guitars are produced and distorted. It will rip your ears off, but in a way that will make you constantly want to keep coming back and listen to it. Piggy, off of The Downward Spiral, uh, probably one of the less characteristic songs on that record. I think one that people sadly forget. Uh, but I love everything from the odd structure to the crazy drum ending. Nobody mentioned Hurt. You gotta mention Hurt. It's the most important Nine Inch Nails song ever. We all thought it's we only the, had five songs. But if we had six, you know, maybe we'd put it in there. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. Just kidding. From the Fragile, I could mention every song, but I won't. I'll mention just Where Is Everybody, which to me is uh, an interesting fusion of the earlier, louder style with the more contemplative, you know, sonic soundscape, synthesizer palette style. Of the fragile, and then lastly, from their most recent album, from Hesitation Marks, I'd mention All Time Low, which I think is 
truly beautiful. I mean, one of these songs that just unfolds like a flower, a beautiful flower. It gets more and more interesting as it goes along. And by the time it ends, you actually are sitting up and saying, wow, I, I, this is never where I thought this would, song would end up where it began. And that's the, the, the greatest tribute you can pay to Nine Inch Nails. They do that on a lot of their music. They go places where when you start that song, you think it will be one thing. And when that song ends, they have covered so much ground. Could say the same thing for their albums as a whole, but I think that that was always Trent Reznor's ethos, his aesthetics, is that he starts you in one place, he takes you to another place. It's not a place that you expect. It's not a place even sometimes you necessarily would want to go. But at the end of the day, you're glad you made that journey. And that's what I love so much about what he has brought to music. And there we are, the Political Beats. Look at the music of Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. Thanks to our guest today. It's her favorite band, Jane Coaston. You can uh, find her writing now, ESPN, New York Times, many other places, formerly of MTV News as well. And follow her on Twitter, at CJane87. Jane, thanks so much for joining Political Beats and sharing your love for Nine Inch Nails. Of course. I mean, as, as I told Jeff, I was willing to do this podcast basically in a tree, in the sea, anytime, <laughs> anywhere. So, hey, I, and by I'm the way, Jane, I'm going to... Jane, I tell you right now, I promise you, political beats will never pivot to video. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God. Uh, Jeff, uh, find him at Esoteric CD, Jeff Blair. Uh, yeah. We'll do it again next week, won't we? Yes, we will. Yes. Uh, remember, this is a presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to the feed on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in and find us to at nationalreview.com on the uh, upper tab. Click on Podcasts, and you'll find all of our episodes right there. New ones Monday mornings. Please subscribe. Please leave reviews. And please come back next week for another edition of Political Beats. 